0: Built Not Born, episode 112.
1: You cut off the ability for millions of kids to accidentally discover how cool the trades were and grow up and become carpenters, plumbers, electricians. And then you have colleges who, on top of all that, are saying, if you don't go to college, you're never going to amount to anything. And that's why you have such a shortage of people who are even considering going into the trades. So, you get that kind of confluence of the perfect storm.
0: Hey, everyone. It's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Ken Rusk. Ken Rusk is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of Blue Collar Cash. Ken is an entrepreneur who launched multiple successful businesses over the past three decades. Ken is a blue collar advocate. He explains why no college degree is necessary or required to find comfort, peace, and freedom in your life. Ken and I discuss why there is such a need for skilled blue-collar trades like plumbers, electricians, carpenters, first responders. Ken shows the way how someone can skip college, find a successful career, and have an amazing life. If you like what you hear, please hit that follow button or share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of really cool interviews to come. Enjoy my conversation with blue-collar advocate Ken Rusk. And remember, life is built, not born. Ken Rusk, welcome to the show. Joe, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's an honor to have you on. Ken, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, I've been accused of being a blue-collar construction entrepreneur and uh, started when I was very young. I still do the same thing now that I did when I was 15, only in a much bigger way. We're in construction. We're basically ditch diggers, which is a long lost art (laughs) and um, still a very necessary thing. We've grown it into other different types of construction concerns. So anything with anything moving dirt or building something, that's kind of what we do.
0: I want to get into A, your book, Blue Collar Cash, Love Your Work, Secure Your Future, Find Happiness for Life, and your thought process on how to create your own path to success using the blue collar path, which is Kind of fell out of vogue over the last decade or two with everyone trying to go to college. So I wouldn't say brainwashed, but everyone kind of has that narrative in their head. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. And you're teaching, I believe you're quoted as saying, no degree is required for comfort, peace, and freedom. I want to talk about that? Maybe with skilled trades, if someone is looking to get into the skilled trades, which one's got your attention now? I think to set them up for future success. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's perfect. Let's rock and roll. Cool. Let's rock and roll. First off, before we get started, where'd you grow up? I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. When you look back to your childhood, who was your biggest influence? Who'd you want to be when you grew up?
1: Well, when I was very young, I wanted to be Richard Petty. I wanted to race cars. So that was was one thing. But in the business world, as I was 12, 13, 14, 15, it was always two people. It was my father. And then it was eventually my first real boss. They both had interesting leadership styles. My father was a marine, tough cookie with a lot of perfectionism, and we had five boys under the age of nine, so we had to run our house like a platoon so <laughs> it was it was great, and I'm so glad that he was the way he was because he was basically you know if you're gonna live here, you're gonna live this way, and if you want something, go out and find a way to get it. I love that about him and the other fellow is my first boss, Nick, who he was a pretty Flamboyant guy. He he lived a really cool life. And I kind of helped him take care of that a little bit when I was 16, 17, 18 years old. I helped him support the stuff he needed to live that way. And it was fun to experience it and watch it happen. And uh, so th- those were a couple of different ways of kind of leading you down the path towards, oh, this is what my life could look like. And how do I go out and, and find a way to get it?
0: If someone asked the 18 year old version of Ken Rusk what he wanted to be when he grew up, What do you think the 18-year-old version of you would have said?
1: At 18, I wanted to open my own business. I wanted to own my own company because I saw the freedom in that from both of these individuals. Anybody that I knew who was doing well ran their own show. And the real attraction for me, Joe, was when you're running your own company, you can control your own input. You can control your own output. You can control your time, your day, your schedule. You can usually control your financial gain. And you control your whole balance, your mental state, the balance of your life. And to me, that having time was as an important asset as money. And so for me, it was always I wanted to run my own show, doing something outside and to be able to create the life that I wanted for myself. Joe, you went silent.
0: Sorry, I was on mute. I went to a state school. Sometimes (laughs) I'm still paying the price, right? (laughs) So you mentioned time. You can get to control your time with your own business. That's something my dad instilled in me when I was younger, the value of it, where how frequently do you see someone trade their time for money, right? And that's just... I don't know. The older I get, the less inclined I am to do that. I feel I can make more money. If you took a thousand bucks from me, I could probably make it back pretty quickly. But if you took a day from me, I'm never going to get that back again. You know? So it's like the more mature I get, the less likely I am to vote my time to something I don't think is worthy. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. And I think Joe, the biggest thing there is how early in life do you learn that lesson? Okay. A lot of people they think that. The value of them running their business is 75 hours a week, working themselves to the bone. They get to come home and tell their wife or their husband, oh man, I did this, I fixed that, I changed this, I decided that, I reversed this and I built that. And if that's your value, is being, you know, the answer man or answer woman for everything, you're gonna have a pretty unhappy life, in my opinion, because. I, the earlier that you learn the lesson that time is, is as valuable as money, you're going to do a couple of things. You're going to start creating an entrepreneurial spirit around your company, meaning you're going to ask other people to do some of the things that you used to do. And you're going to share in the newfound and, new, and additional revenue of those things. And those people are going to drive your company with and for you way further than you could do it on your own. So the sooner you learn the time lesson, the sooner you become a person who starts building entrepreneurs around you. And those are people, not entrepreneurs, that take all the risk. An entrepreneur works with you within your company, but feels like they're kind of running their own show and they have their own financial control. Surround yourself with as many of those people as you can. You're going to live the best life you can imagine. Trust me, I've been there. I've been doing it for a lot of years and it's the only way to go.
0: Let's get to it. The trades, the college, blue collar to white collar. I'll kick the question off to you. Can you speak to the shortage of skilled blue collar trades in this state? What do you see? Yeah,
1: you know, th- this is a phenomenon that I've been watching for a very long time. So when I was in high school in the 80s, you know, you could walk down the hallway, look to your left and see someone taking the transmission out of a Mustang. Look to the right, see somebody milling a, a leg for a table, go down the hallway, see somebody wiring an outlet or building a small barn or cutting someone's hair. It was shop class and everybody had it. And you could accidentally discover how cool the trades were for you. Well, they took all those classes away and they filled those rooms with computers, which is fine. We need to learn computers. But why did it have to be one or the other? Why couldn't we have had both, right? So what you did is inadvertently, you cut off the ability for millions of kids to accidentally discover how cool the trades were and grow up and become those things, carpenters, plumbers, electricians. So if you pair that with the fact that now, instead of kids going out in the backyard and just by chance building a tree fort and saying, wow, I kind of like building things, that's kind of cool. Now they're building cities on their cell phones, which is not the same experience, Joe, and you, you know that as well as I do. And then you have colleges who, on top of all that, are saying, if you don't come our way, if you don't go to college, you're never going to amount to anything. Well, let's not forget that they sell college for a living, okay? And their business is first and educators second. So you get that kind of confluence of perfect storm. And that's why you have such a shortage of people who are even considering going into the trades because they aren't exposed to it at, at an early age.
0: Yeah. And then that societal norm, like I know when I was in high school back in the day, like there was, I had no option. Like I remember my parents telling me at eight years old, I was going to grow up and go to college, right? You're going, you're going to college, you're going to college. And I probably told my kids the same thing, but then you take a step back. Now that societal norm is basically creating, you're forcing kids through a system, right? Maybe it's some smart, some book smart kids That go to a school that maybe their parents really didn't properly save or couldn't save, and they're coming out with loaded up with debt. They have a generic business degree or they're teachers, and they're one hundred and fifty thousand dollars in debt, and they're entering a crowded field of a sea of teaching degrees with generic business degrees, and you have six figure debt load, and you're twenty three years old. Can you speak to what they're up against in this day and age?
1: First off, let's just put it out on the table. So by the time you put your feet on the floor getting out of bed in the morning to the time you get to your office, church, or school, you're walking across 10,000 blue-collar jobs that are still viable and very profitable to this day. In fact, of the 165 million people in the United States that are considered full employment, 77 million of those people, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, work with their hands. So nearly half the country works with their hands, and yet all the smart people, the college people, the professors, the teachers, the guidance counselors are all trying to put 100% of our future kids into college. You can see the imbalance that's going to happen there, right? It's already been happening. We have not just a blue-collar problem. We have a blue-collar crisis. However, there is a silver lining there because for that person who says, college isn't for me, I learn kinesthetically. I learn with my hands, Okay. That's not for me. I'm going to go into the trades where supply is low and demand is high. Joe, that's where the money goes. And if you're smart and you're a contrarian thinker, let all your buddies go to college. Let them do it. If you want to be a carpenter, you go be a freaking carpenter or you be an electrician or you be a plumber. You're going to make a killing because you're doing something that other people aren't. And that is the very definition of taking advantage of supply and demand.
0: Why do you think the trades do not get the attention that they need? You can't find a good plumber. If you can, they're going to charge you $200 just to walk in your door, let alone the job. They're, they get paid well. My kids are around high school age. And very few look into the trades, the skilled trades. It's more like, what college are we going to? Are we going to go Ivy League? Are we going to go state school? That's the question. It isn't like plumber, electrician etc. Where do you think that stigma comes from where the best and brightest don't go into the, the skilled trades?
1: So you used to have an imbalance of pay back in the 50s, 60s and 70s, where if you had a white collar, and by the way, the definition of white collar was when you were a business person, an educated person back in the day, you had these snap on white collars back in the late 1800s. And you would walk around town with these high collars and everyone knew you were a well-dressed, educated person. You must have been in some white-collar scenario. Blue-collar people, they wore dungarees or jeans and, or Levi's and they were blue. And that's why they called them blue-collar people. The difference is back then, the people who really had it on the ball apparently went into white-collar careers and the people who didn't went into blue-collar careers. That's never been true. OK, especially in this day and age with the technology that you need to do a lot of the jobs that you need to do in blue collar, you, you got to have it on the ball. And th- there's th- there, there's so much opportunity there. I look at it this way, Joe, N- nobody ever came into this ditch diggers front yard and looked at my house and looked at all the things that I've accomplished and said, hey, man, what degree do you have? That's never happened They're, They'll ask me, well, how'd you grind this life out? Which I'm happy to tell them that. But it's not about that. Programming parents to think that, well, the only way I can be successful as a parent is if my kid has a four-year degree. My first question is, and then what? Okay. Shouldn't your goal as a successful parent be to have a happy, independent, self-sufficient, financially stable kid? Or is it to have one that's just overly educated? I look at it this way. If you're looking at What you see happening in front of you, and you're looking at supply and demand. If you put your kid into college and get him or her wrapped up into 150 grand in debt, and they come out with this bland business degree, of which there's 5 million other kids that are doing the same thing, playing beer pong and just making it through, you're doing your kid a disservice by sending him to college. You're actually setting him or her backwards by sending them to school, unless And I say this all the time, unless there's a specific career, I'm going to be an accountant. And when I'm done, I have an accounting job waiting for me. I'm going to be a teacher. And when I'm done, the teachers are going to be waiting for me. I'm going to be a surgeon. And when I'm done, the hospitals are waiting for me. Specific career, specific degree, specific job. Do that. That's fine. But if you're just sending your kid off to make you feel better, you're really doing them a disservice, especially when you look at this math. I've seen some people rack up $200,000 in debt, 50 grand a year all in for a college degree. That's a negative on their asset base. I've seen kids today, 18 years old, walking out making 50, 60, 75,000 a year in a construction job. In four years, that's 200,000 to the plus side of their asset base. That's a $400,000 swing. So as a parent, you better be sure that you know what you're doing when you're guiding your kid down one of these paths because you're setting them up for failure if you put them in a position that they don't have something specific waiting for them when they come out.
0: When you look at today's economy and just where the job market is now, if someone's listening to this and said, I learned with my hands, I would love to skip college. I would love to get a skilled trade. Where would you direct them? Give us some ideas. What's this current economy in need of?
1: So- Right now, for every 10 electricians that are retiring, and the average age of those electricians is 55. For every 10 electricians that are retiring, only four or five are coming online. Wow. What does that tell you? I just interviewed a gal who at 30 gave up her sales job at some fancy place she was working because she hated it and she became an electrician and now she's killing it. I can point you to a 27-year-old gal who's making 150 grand a year standing on the top of wind windmills as a welder. It's insane. Anything that you can do with these two things, I'm talking about my hands right now. Plumbers, welders, electricians, carpenters, energy workers, e- even things like believe it or not, policemen, first responders, things where there's a market shortage of these people. Again, if you think about it, look around your community and see where the shortages are. Look around your community and see what people aren't doing. And then jump into those areas because you're going to make a fortune doing it that way.
0: It's like that awareness factor where just look around where's the need and fill the need. That is really good. Let's say there's someone that likes to work with their hands. Maybe they're not great in school, but I know people that don't love school, that aren't crazy about studying, but they just go to college because that's the next step that they had in their mind for the past decade of their life. We're just going to go to school because that's what everyone does when they're 17, 18 years old, graduate high school, you go to college. How can we change that mindset? How can we instill confidence in kids saying that you can skip college and let your other 17 friends go and you can pivot and you can go left when they go right? Like, What do you think people need to hear?
1: That's a great question. I I talk a lot about that in the book. In fact, more than half of the book is about this very subject. So in my mind, it doesn't matter what you do for a living as much as it matters what you do with what you do for a living, okay? Let me clarify that. So as long as you're living the life that you see for yourself, and we talk a lot about this and how to build this process in the book, If I know what I want my house to look like, what I want my car to look like, what I want my pet to look like, what I want my vacations to look like, what I want my sports and my hobbies to look like, what I want my charity give back moment to look like. If I know what all those things to me, what they look like for my future, there's six different ways to get there. Mm -hmm. A tech school, a trade school, an apprenticeship, working right out of high school, a military career. Or going to college. We have to get kids to understand that college has only ever been one of six paths to get to where you need to go. And by the way, what is the end game? Is the end game to walk around this earth with your degree tattooed on your chest? Or is your aim to live the way you want to live? Your comfort, your peace, your freedom, your time? I believe that the goal, the end game is I want to live the way I want to live. Okay, my own unique nirvana. Okay, I can build it just the way I want to build it. And if I get that, what the hell does it matter how I got there? Because we don't live to work, Joe. We work so that we can, in fact, live. And it's the living part that I'm so interested in, because people tend to treat that as an if-then scenario. If I go to high school, and if I get good grades, and if I get a scholarship, and if I go to college, and if I get a degree, and then if I get a high-paying job, then I can start living my life. Baloney. You need to know what living your life looks like first, and then pick one of the many ways to get there.
0: I like that. Just to recap, first off, you said a few moments ago, look around to see what your community needs. That's the awareness factor of where, maybe where you are in the country or where you are in the state or potentially where a good next step would be. But also, too, you said, what do you want your life to look like? And do that before. Kind of start like with the end in mind, like that Stephen Covey. Just to begin with the end in mind. What is your end game? Then create your own unique nirvana or like lifestyle. Like you want to create your own lifestyle and you start that at the beginning. I want my life to look like this. And then you choose a pathway to get you there. And again, and the last thing you said, which I love, you work so you can live. You do not live so you can work. And I think sometimes we just get that mixed up. Yeah, that's really, really good. Really good. How about writing a book is no small feat. What did you learn writing that book? Because it's new. It's a Wall Street Journal bestseller. I see Tony Robbins. First off, how did you get Tony Robbins to give you that quote? It was such a nice quote Tony gave you. How did you? How that? How that happen?
1: Well, Tony Robbins is one of the principals in a company called Fountain Life. Fountain Life is a longevity center that is looking at instead of reactive medicine. It's looking at proactive medicine, things that you can do to extend your life, to extend the life of your joints, your muscles, your bones, before they become affected by different things. And so I was, I'm was i a member of that club, if you will. And so I met people that knew him and whatever. He's doing some great things with life extension. I, I just, I applaud everything that he does. So I emailed him and I said, I'm a member of this club and I love what you're doing. And this is what I'm doing from a mental side. Would you comment? And he gave me that quote and he was happy to do it, and it's on the book. So pretty cool.
0: He is such a force of nature. Like when he is on, there's such energy there, and there's such force. There's few people on the planet that can bring the energy in a room more than Robbins is. Now that that's That's really cool. Getting back to your book, we had so many best-selling authors on the show, Seth Godin. Donald Robertson, Jeffrey Gittimer, Derek Sivers. What did you learn writing your book? It's such a grind to get one through. So t- what did you learn when you wrote your book, Blue Collar Cash, Wall Street Journal well, bestseller?
1: First off, I never woke up and said I'm going to be an author. What happened was my daughter got sick, and we talked about this earlier. She had a pretty scary disease for four or five years that, that we had to watch and make sure that we eradicated. And For her mother and I, that was a pretty scary time. So I had a lot of time sitting around hospital rooms and doctors waiting offices and oncology rooms and all that stuff. And it's a grind. I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but she's fine. And you have a lot of time to think. And one of the things that I was thinking about during all this time was, what would I tell her about what she should be chasing in life? If she's going to go after something in life, what should it be? Because we're not all going to chase 15 cars and mega mansions and yachts and rap star careers and you know all that kind of thing. But can you live your best life? Can you live your nirvana like we just talked about a minute ago? So I started writing some notes to her. And then I started giving her some examples of friends of mine that had done very well overcoming amazing obstacles, Joe, like you can't even believe, to become successful people. And my wife, one day, she said, you know, you got a book here. And I said, well, I never intended on writing a book, but I'm 20,000 words in. So I'm literally writing on legal pads, filling out one legal pad after another till I had 15 or 20 of those filled out. And then uh, you're right. It becomes a grind because you, you take it, you find an editor then you get squared away there they rearrange and organize your thoughts and then you go to find an agent and then you find a social media person and then a brand builder and then you go find a publisher and luckily i landed the biggest publisher out there harper collins and it was just fantastic but i learned that writing the book is the easy part people think it's the hard part getting your book out there and getting people to want it and to see it and to read it that's the hard part luckily We hit some really good things. I hit some really good media opportunities, and the thing became a bestseller. So I'm going to do it again. I loved the process, even though it was a grind. And I encourage anybody out there to to go make that happen.
0: Your follow-up, what type of topic is your second book on a cover? Where, Where are you going? Well,
1: if you're thinking about, there was one surprise reader with the book. So I thought for sure I'd have people targeted maybe 16 to 20 years of age, starting out in life. What am I going to do with my life? And I also thought that I would have people who already went to college, like the electrician that I talked to you about yesterday. She already went through this whole process, didn't love it, wanted to change her life completely. Those were two readers I knew I would get. The third reader was the business owner who said, I'm trying to build a group of entrepreneurs around me to help me drive my business because it's too hard to do it all by myself. So if I can get a bunch of people around me thinking, What's in it for me to work here? And how can I build my life with and through your organization, which means I'll stay, I'll be loyal and long-term. I want to do that. And so the culture of a company is so important because if your place isn't cool to work at, you can hire all you want, but you're not going to keep people. Mm -hmm. So it's all about attracting people, retaining people, and, and making your office environment just a cool place to work we're going to come at it from the standpoint of the employee. Like I work at this place and there's, I wish my boss knew this, or I wish my boss knew that, or if only my boss knew this. So we're going to come at it from how to create culture, whether you're the employee or the employer and see where it goes.
0: Culture is so important. And when you have it, you have it. And when you don't, it's just a bad place to be. Seth Godin, who is a two-time guest on the show here, defines culture as the way we do things around here. That's basically his version of culture, like how things are done around here. Say there's a business owner out there listening, or maybe an employee who's maybe one of the main employees, maybe an entrepreneur. How do you create some best practices on how to create a great culture on your team? Or maybe you work in a big company, but you run a little team inside of a company, or you sure. run a small business. How do you create a great culture? What are some of your tips?
1: First off, if you think about a, a typical mechanical interview, right, the typical interview, the person comes in and you're interviewing that person and you're saying, these are the tasks that I need you to do. This is how I need you to do them and when and where. This is how much I'm willing to pay you to do these tasks. And that person looks back and says, okay, I'm qualified to do those tasks. I'm worthy of the money that you're paying for those tasks. I'm available to do those tasks. And then when you're done, you have this transactional relationship where you have work to do. They want the work. They do the work. You pay them. Everybody's happy. Well, you're only getting one third of the human being there because there's a whole nother two thirds of of this person. And that is What does he or she like? What does he or she want to do? What does he or she dream about? What does he or she worry about? What does he or she want their family to look like or their future to look like or their retirement to look like? Can they prosper within your organization? Can they make a career within your organization? Do they like working? Is your environment cool? And is it a a type of environment that makes people want to accelerate and expand their thoughts and ideas? There's two thirds of the person. You're not even taking advantage of two thirds of, of that human being if you're not asking those questions. So the very first thing you can do is get involved in why are they here? And I mean, get really involved in it. What do they want their life to look like? What do they want their future to look like? And every single, have them draw it out and put it somewhere in the office so that they're focused on winning for themselves first and you second. And yes, I'm talking about building selfish employees. And I don't mean selfish at the detriment of others where they hoard and they cast aside other people. I'm talking about people who are focused on them first and you second, because if you fill up your office with those types of people, get out of their way, man, because you give them the mandate, they're going to drive that company way further than you can drive it yourself, I promise you. It's happened for me. It continues to happen, and I think it's the only way to run a company these days.
0: That is fantastic. What you mentioned there about the why, and it's not your why, it's their why. Are you familiar with Jocko Welling, the Navy SEAL? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So Jocko I well, was just in Philly a couple of weeks back. I had a live show called, it was called The Decisive Engagement. And part of the show that he spoke of is average leaders tell you the why, like why we're doing something. Great leaders understand your why, like the why their people are there, why their people are working Are some people working to pay off their kids' student loans or making sure the kids don't have student loans? Or some people are there to, everyone has their own version of why and great leaders figure out why are there people there. And you just hit that right on the head, man. That's, that is awesome. I think you could just see how the culture is just so different when you're working with your people's why and you connect with that. They're motivated. They probably don't leave. And they get really good at what they do. They feel engaged, appreciated, right? And then that workplace, you're just crushing.
1: Here's a statement that I, I challenge business owners to make. Sure. And I've said this hundreds of times. I want a business owner to stand in front of his or her staff and say these words. I can't get what I want, nor can my company get what it wants or needs, until all of you get what you want first. Because wow. it's true, and in, if you look in any company, Joe, it's a linear scenario. There's an input, there's work, and then there's an output. And you, as the owner, are always on the output side. You're on the you're on the end of it, right? Mm-hmm. Because nothing happens until everything else works before you. So why wouldn't you support that? Why wouldn't you say I want you guys all to win? Because when you win, I win. We all win, right? Why would you start with, I'm gonna win and you're just gonna work here and be this person? It doesn't work that way anymore. I don't think it ever did. But the point is, if you get a group of people that are all working for themselves and truly believe that they can build a life within and through your organization, man, get the hell out of their way because they're gonna drive that thing so fast and far, you're not it's gonna make your head spin. I
0: think it's Steve Jobs, hire great people and get out of their way. It's so important with a leader. Like the hiring process, if you're bring you have a small business and say you have ten people that work for you, if you hire people that are engaged and motivated and you understand their why and they want to be there and they become that entrepreneur, man, you're ninety percent of your work is done. Like you just have to go and tweak and add and check in and provide and help. But if you put if that why is not there and the culture's bad, probably ninety percent of your work's ahead of you, or you can never you you probably never get there. This
1: is something that. Again, if you're an egomaniac business owner, you're not going to like this statement, but your goal should be to make yourself irrelevant to the business. And when I mean irrelevant, I don't mean like you just go play golf all day long. I'm saying you can plug yourself in anywhere you want, at any time you want, wherever you want and monitor and design and visualize future things, but you're not held to any one particular task. Whereas if you didn't do that task, the company wouldn't function. If you put yourself in that position, and a lot of these ego-driven people are really afraid of that because they're like, well, wait a minute, then they don't need me and I I need to be needed. And baloney, you're needed by your ability to drive all of them to drive for themselves. That's the real magic sauce there. It isn't them watching you work and going, wow, look at how good he or she is. That's a fallacy. It's about your ability to create emotion moving forward with a lot of people rowing in the same direction. That's the real piece and how to get yourself where you want to go.
0: No, that's great. Well, one more term I want to follow up on just before we move on to the next phase of the interview. You mentioned a few times that intrapreneur or that person that works inside the company. Right. One that's the first as a business owner. What's the best way to know? if you're trying to bring people into the organization, that they have that intrapreneur mindset. Are there any best practices that you found that when you're interviewing someone or trying to see if it's a good fit to bring them on board, that they have that entrepreneurial spirit?
1: Yeah. So let me give you one example. In the hallway of our office, there's two bathrooms, men's and women's. And in the middle of that, in between those two doors, I have about 10 foot wide and six or eight feet tall, a big glass board. And it's like black glass. That's all the I mean, way I can describe it. It's hanging on the wall. And have you ever been to like a Mexican restaurant and they have the margarita special out front and they write it in those neon markers. It's real yeah. little bright colored or whatever. And they make designs. Absolutely. So those are the markers that we use. And people go up to that board and they write their goals down. And I don't mean... I want to be taller or I want to someday learn Spanish. I'm talking about specific goals, okay? I want to save $5,000 to go to Italy. I'm going to save 50 bucks a week for 24 months, two years. And in August of 25, I'm going to Italy. And they date it and they sign it and it's there for everyone to see. Now, that's a voluntary thing. I push people to do it. You don't have to do it. But if you know how powerful goals written down are, especially shared with everybody else, you know how powerful those results are going to be. So I have a lot of people that are up on that board, okay? Some that aren't. Where do you think your entrepreneurs are found? On that board. People that are on that board. The first people that are on that board. The second, third, fifth, and tenth person that's on that board. Those are the people that you know are in it to win it for themselves. So, wouldn't you want to surround yourself with those kind of people? That's just one trick right there. The other trick is to gather a bunch of people together and to say, Our company is doing X level of revenue right now. I have you people around me that help me do this every day. If we went to Y revenue, I would share some of that with you. Okay. Now, I want you all to write down how much you think Y could be. Like if we're doing 10 million a year right now, what could we do if we all work together and we found efficiencies or we found new markets or new products and services, what could we do? Their numbers are going to be higher than your numbers are. I I promise you, you're going to say 12 and they're going to go, well, I think we can do 14. Okay. (laughs) So The people that answer those questions are big thinkers, right? Those are the people you want around you. So that's another way to find out who your entrepreneurs are, because they probably also have a plan of how they can do it. And if you send them away and say, well, let's talk next week about what steps you might take to get to that 14 million number. And they come back with ideas written down between the goal board and what I just told you, there you are, pal. There's your entrepreneurs right there in front of you.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Ken, okay, let's move over to a part of the interview we call Share Your Secrets. So our listeners can get to know you a bit more as a person and what makes you tick. Most authors are pretty big readers. Is there a book out there that influenced your life or changed your mind more than any other? Do you have like a favorite book?
1: Well, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, that's just that's just an awesome book. I think that thing's been a bestseller forever. and it It's keeps, like the
0: Bible. It just sells and sells and sells. It yeah. just
1: keeps coming back, 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 back. I take a little bits and pieces from all these things, but that's the key to it. If you're going to read a book, if you're going to read my book, okay, you have to put it into action, which is by, I actually built a course around it. You can't just take a book and read it and put it up on the shelf and go, look at me. I read that book. Look at all the trophies I have up there, man. They're like largemouth bass hanging on the wall. (laughs) They're, They're trophies, right? What did you gain from that? Well, nothing, but I read the book. Well, no, you need to take that thing and put it into action in some way. And so I would just caution you whatever book you read to make absolutely sure that you take action from that book or else it's just an exercise
0: in futility that is such great advice like if i'm doing an audible book or reading something when i have an idea from a book that i implement sometimes i just put that book down and implement that idea for days or weeks at a time just like like i got what i needed from that book i might go back to it later but i I like i'll pull that idea out or a book like the seven habits or like a seth godin book if i'm struggling in a certain area I'll go to that book and look at a note or two that I took, and I've oh, I, there's there's a habit or an action I need to make more consistently, and I'll start doing that action. I'll put the book down. Very rarely do I read all 300 pages and have 17 ideas. Usually, you do nothing with that, right? That, right. That's more that's more like leisure reading. But like if I say self help or like there's nonfiction books that are helping you evolve your mindset or evolve the way you think. When I get that idea, that book's down before the next idea smothers it, and I, get, I start to move
1: yeah, I mean, I, I've seen business courses out there for $1,200, $1,500, two, $3,000, and that's fine. I get it. My world was really good before I wrote this book. So this is my way of giving back. I, I love to give back. I'm a huge charity guy. I do it all the time. For 129 bucks, you can buy my course, which is eight sessions at 45 minutes a session. You get a free $25 blue collar cash book with it. And so for $99, you're changing your life. Because it forces you to say, okay, I'm going to do something today with what he just told me. Mm-hmm. And then tomorrow, I'm going to do something else. And I'm going to do something else next week. And I'm going to transform myself. Again, I donate most of my money to charity anyway. So it's it's been a real pleasure to build a course that's had such impact on people. And I hope people take advantage of
0: it. Your course, The Path to Success, it's called, right? Yep. Joe, so Who's the ideal person to take that course? If someone's out there listening for 129 bucks, who's the ideal I, person?
1: I would say this. That's a great question, Joe. Thank you for asking. I would say anyone who's stuck, anyone who feels stuck, anyone who, who thinks life is happening to me, I'm not happening to my life. Because I don't care if you're 15 or 50, you can find something in that course that goes, holy cow, light bulb. That is so simple. Why didn't I think of that? Why didn't anybody ever tell me this? Why didn't I learn this in high school? It's, it, it's crazy how simple ideas implemented in simple ways can make such a huge difference in your life. All you got to do is take that first step. And that first step is usually the hardest one. But when you do that, it's just amazing.
0: Even in the world of, say, jujitsu, I see my mat behind me. I think the hardest belt, someone would say, oh, what's the hardest belt? Black. That takes the longest to get that, but I think the hardest belt is to get your white belt. White belt meaning you stopped whatever you were doing and you actually changed your habit of the night or the day of the week and you go to an academy and you join and you take a class and you started a new habit. You walk (laughs) in a... Uh, an uncomfortable room with a bunch of big dudes or yeah. a bunch of athletic people like just rolling around strangling each other doing what they do and you're like I want to be part of that and you buy a uniform you put a white belt on and you step on the mat you promoted yourself to white belt there and I think that's the most important belt where you start and you change and you do something different you act on something right right There's
1: no doubt that when you set goals properly, and I mentioned one earlier, the 24 weeks to go to Italy, okay? Or 24, yeah, 24 Mm -hmm. months. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. So the very, the hardest thing is just to say, first off, I'm now a goal setting person. I'm not this couch potato anymore. I'm going to get off my butt and I'm going to make something happen for my life. Step one, congratulate yourself. Make sure that your goals are really clearly defined and you can see it. And what happens is The first week, the second week, the third week, yeah, those are a little tough because it's new and different. But then all you do is wake up and breathe and you're going to get to 24 months and you're going to be on your way to Italy. And the best part, Joe, is you get to anticipate that the whole time. You get to anticipate how cool it's going to be to get on that plane and do all the things and go to the restaurants and see the wineries and all that. It's all about life is all about anticipating several different events at the same time. That's how I look at it It really is the only way to live is to be thinking and not wishing and hoping and dreaming, but actually be on the path to doing something. And like you said, the first several steps are always the hardest.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned how you break a big goal down. You said 24 months. If you were writing, I a, say, a, a, like a blog post or a book or whatever, like I find it so much more like I, I can't do four hours all at once and get it done. But if I wrote for 20 minutes at a time and I yeah. did that. A week straight, I'd have a blog post, and I did. A, if I did that ten weeks in a row, I might have ten articles. I might have a little ebook. Then for that, sure, that yeah. daily dose destroys the, those random, uh, infrequent, Herculean efforts. I'm doing five hours of this. If you gave me ten minutes a day for a month, versus like four hours all at once, that ten minutes a day, I would that version of me would crush the five hours all at once, right? Because it would be well, like a fresh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: With me in the book. I mean, I would come home after golf and have an idea and I'd write for an hour and then I would drop it. Yep. And then maybe on a weekend, I'd have a big idea and I'd write for three hours, but then I would drop it. I, I never said I'm going home to write. I don't know how people can. I don't even know how music people do that, where they say, hey, this Saturday, let's get together and write a song. It, to me, it has to be inspirational. Right. Yeah. So I, I would do exactly what you did. I, I would write for an hour here, two hours there, three hours there. And then after a while, I just had it done. I didn't have a time frame. I wasn't in any hurry. I didn't care how long it took because I knew it was going to happen. And I had my eye on the end prize in a best selling book. I, I still can't believe it happened, but uh, it did. And I'm really grateful for it.
0: So cool. You kind of pulled off what Seth Godin would say drip, drip, drip creates the wave, right? And just, Absolutely. It's, it's, it's constant drip. Yeah. It's really good. Moving uh-huh. on. How about most successful people like yourself? have a routine, either to start their day or to end their day. What does either the first hour or last hour of your day look like? What's your routine look like?
1: The very first thing I do is I walk over to my pub. I have a pub on my first floor of my house and I walk over there and I have a little shelf that's full of all my protein shake stuff. I have a protein shake that I make that has like 12 different ingredients in it. I take my time and I do it and I put some music on and I just chill out in the morning. I look out of my yard or whatever. But I also have a rotating frame of pictures of memories of things that I've done. Yeah. And so as I'm making the shake, I stare at this frame and I always end up laughing about yeah. something. So within 15 minutes of my day, I'm grateful. I have memories and I'm laughing and I'm treating my body right at the same time. So I do all that have my shake i go hit the gym which is right across the driveway in an outbuilding that i have on my property then i head back in go to work because it's about me first and that's okay because it's my time yep. and if i'm no good nobody else is good meaning i can't be good to others if i'm not good to myself so um
0: that's kind of my first hour of the day that is awesome those digital frames We have kind of almost, we have a little bit of the same routine. On mine, we start off with, uh, I'm grinding some coffee beans up uh, and I'm doing some AeroPress. We have a digital frame and we probably downloaded about a thousand picks. We have uh, three kids from the, it's just our family, just one of someone in our family has to be in each of the pictures and mostly, and it's just like when one, somebody was two and Disney world at the beach and the mountains and like an an average dinner, we took a funny picture or a selfie. And you look at four or five of them as you're grinding up and and putting the coffee together. It just, it just changes your mindset of the day with gratitude. It can't not
1: do that. It has to do it. The gratitude is the biggest thing. It's the biggest thing.
0: It's crazy. No, it's so good. Now, thank you for sharing that. How about this? As you look out to the year ahead, what's the most exciting project you're working on now?
1: I'm starting to write the other book, which is really cool. I'm getting excited about that. I have a foundation that I'm st- that I've started called the Comfort, Peace, Freedom Foundation, which supports veterans with this material for free. People can go and donate towards getting them a book and a course for free. And we take money in any denominations; it doesn't matter five dollars, ten dollars, whatever it might be. And on the other side, on the construction side, I'm building a new headquarters for our company next year. So we're in the planning stages of that. My daughter and my son-in-law are architects, and and uh, they're helping me plan that right now. Yeah, just looking forward. I'm going to be a grandfather here in November, so I'm looking wow. forward to that. Congrats! That's and, so um,
0: cool. Oh my yeah, gosh. My first
1: one. So it's going to be a, it's going to be an interesting next twelve months. That's for sure.
0: That is awesome. Thanks for sharing that, Ken. How about this? A couple of fun questions to wrap this up. We spoke about a lot. We spoke about entrepreneurs and culture and the trades and what a great idea it is for being a plumber, electrician, a carpenter. Ken, if you could have everyone listening take just one lesson away from everything we discussed, what would that lesson be?
1: You'll never accomplish something that you can't see first very clearly. And what I mean by that is you've probably never gotten into your car, turned on the engine, put the car in reverse, backed out of the driveway, put the car in drive, and then said, where the hell am I going? You always have a very clear idea of where you're going, what it's going to look like, feel like, smell like, taste like, be like. So if you're that good at envisioning a trip, if you're that good at planning a vacation, why can't you be that good at planning your life and anticipating All of the beautiful things that can come to you in that process. So I would say this, if you can't see it, you'll never do it. So start looking. It's out there and see it clearly and then it'll come to you.
0: If you can't see it, you can never do it. Wow, that is so good. Thank you for that. Here's a fun question. Ken, if you could spend the day with anyone, alive or dead, family member, famous person, anyone throughout history, who would you spend the day with?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm crossing myself between like Stephen Tyler and George Washington. So
0: <laughs> Let's go both. How great would that be? Oh, my gosh. He, he could sing like uh, "Loving in an Elevator as we're crossing right. the Delaware. You know what I mean? It, it, right. One yeah. of the best concerts I've ever seen was Aerosmith in Philly back in the day. So good. Man, they're so good. <laughs> How about this? Last question. Ken Rusk, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body. What would that quote or motto say?
1: It'd have to be Carpe Diem, live for today.
0: Awesome. Carpe Diem, live for today. I I think that is about as good as a spot as any to wrap this up. Ken Rusk, thank you for joining us, sharing your story, sharing the great pathway for anyone in the workplace, thinking about going into the workplace, about to go in the workplace, ready to pivot in the workplace, about going into the blue collar trades. Ken, if people are looking for you and what you do and your course and your book online, where can we find you?
1: Just go to kenrusk.com. And you'll see the book, the course, and everything else that we're doing there. You can go to at Ken Rusk Official on all the socials to see what we're up to there. And you can go to CPF, as for Comfort, Peace, and Freedom, cpf-military.com to look at the Comfort, Peace, and Freedom Foundation that we're using to support veterans.
0: What I'm going to do is I'm going to put your foundation, all your links to your social media, kenrusk.com, your book your course. I'm going to put them all in the show notes. So if Perfect. anyone's looking for any of that, just go to the show notes and all the links will be there. Ken, pleasure to meet you and just I love yes, your man. thought process. It's so refreshing and I appreciate you coming on the show.
1: That was really cool. I've done a lot of these, as I've told you, and it's always fun to see someone that really is engaged in what they're doing and has great questions and really thoughtful. And so I I just want you to know from this side of the screen, I really appreciate that you, you did really well. Thanks for having me, Joe. I appreciate
0: it. Anytime. Hey, everyone. It's Joe. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you could, please give us a five-star rating on your podcast listening app, or better yet, share the episode with a friend. That really goes a long way of helping the podcast grow and connecting it with a bigger audience. Thanks so much. Talk soon.